0: Diary. 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 Radio. Diary.
1: For journalists covering the criminal justice system, wrongful convictions aren't a new story. But in the last year or so, it seems the topic has really captured the attention of everyday Americans. From serial at non Syed to the Netflix documentary series Making a Murderer. It's become easier than ever before to peer into the worlds of police officers, prosecutors, and the accused. And when we do get to look inside, what we find is often unsettling. On this episode, we're going inside a wrongful conviction investigation that's played out over the last nearly 15 years. Brian O'Donoghue is a journalism professor at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. And for more than a decade, he's been leading his students in a real-life, high-stakes investigation into the convictions of four men, known as the Fairbanks Four. In three separate trials, the men were found guilty of killing a teenager named John Hartman in 1997. But when Brian and his students began checking out the evidence in the case, they found things that just didn't add up. So they kept digging. They talked to jurors, reviewed mountains of court documents, and interviewed everyone they could find who might know something about the case. The Alaska Innocence Project got involved, and at the end of last year, the Fairbanks Four were released from prison, their convictions erased. They'd spent nearly two decades behind bars. Coming up, IRE's Aaron Palish talks to Brian O'Donoghue about his role, and the role of his students, in helping to free the Fairbanks Four. I'm Daniela Vidal, and you're listening to the IRE radio podcast.
2: On an early Saturday morning in October 1997, a 15-year-old named John Hartman was assaulted by a group of men in the middle of a dark street in Fairbanks, Alaska. He was taken to the hospital, where he remained unconscious until he died the following day. Within hours of Hartman's death, the police announced that they had identified his killers.
0: They weren't looking for any other suspects. They uh, indicated at a press conference that they, two people had confessed.
2: That's Brian O'Donohue. He was working at the Fairbanks News Miner at the time. Initially, he didn't cover the Hartman murder, but he remembers plenty of conversations with colleagues about the case. It became a huge story in Fairbanks and the surrounding native towns. Eugene Vent, George Freeze, Marvin Roberts, and Kevin Pease were arrested for the murder after Vent and Fries confessed. It's worth mentioning that Vent, Fries, and Roberts are all native Athabascans, a minority group in Alaska. At the time, Brian didn't find their arrest suspicious, and neither did anybody he talked to.
0: It just wasn't something that really even came up. It seemed like the police had gotten a lucky break.
2: Vent and Fries later retracted their confessions, and all four maintained their innocence throughout their trials each of the Fairbanks Four were found guilty and given sentences ranging from 33 to 79 years in prison. At this point in the story, it's 2001. Brian is working as the editorial page editor at the News Minor, and he starts getting letters about the case from people in the native Athabaskan community arguing that the Fairbanks Four were wrongly convicted.
0: They were raising very, very specific complaints and making accusations about racism and uh, a lot of, you know, uh, what to me were um, libelous, uh, you know, potential uh, assertions on their face. And as editorial page uh, editor, I found myself um, running down to the courthouse just trying to, to vet some of these letters and, and, and see if there was any, um, any uh, justification for what was uh, being presented.
2: The letter writers claimed that the police had manipulated evidence, that key witnesses had lied about what they saw, and that investigators had ignored witnesses who verified the alibis of the Fairbanks Four.
0: A lot of times with the letter writer, you would uh, kind of negotiate, uh, well, this needs to be phrased more as an opinion than an assertion of fact. But what I was finding is that um, there was some basis for uh, these, a lot of these complaints. It, it, at least there had been certain types of evidence presented, and there, and there were uh, disputes about witnesses. And, and, um, but it was really uh, pretty overwhelming to try to dig into and uh, so it's the kind of thing it's it's uh all you can do is it it just left questions in my mind
2: around the same time the University of Alaska Fairbanks called the journalism department there had an emergency teaching vacancy and they wanted Brian to fill it he took over the investigative reporting class and decided to use the Hartman case as a real-life example at the time he thought the Fairbanks four were guilty
0: I thought that this would be a matter of explaining the process to, to folks that um, were, were maybe not um, well-informed about what matters under the law. And we had, um, you know, my sources in the police department were telling me that, you know, hey, all you really need to know uh, that the right guys are in jail is to get a hold of the full confessions because some portions of them had been suppressed. And so I went into this thinking that we, we were basically going to do a, a, a public service by explaining – um, how it is that the, that the right people are, are convicted.
2: So he assigned his students to the case and asked them to examine and evaluate the evidence. They established a plan for investigating the case with different students working different angles.
0: We uh, had pretty well uh, identified that um, we needed to get the full confessions, the, the full, you know, uncensored um, interrogation statements. We wanted to identify whatever kind of physical evidence might exist. Uh, one of my students was uh, um, a non traditional, uh, uh, you know, retired uh, Coast Guard military policeman who was, you know, going back to school. And he's the one who just zeroed in on physical evidence. He's, he's like, you can't have a beating death, you know, a person that is, um, you know, uh, left in the street, you know, f- uh, from what looks like being kicked, and there not be some sort of physical evidence. And then we are also looking at the alibis.
2: But pretty quickly, the case against the Fairbanks Four began to unravel.
0: What kept happening is uh, every every kind of uh, file drawer we opened, every um, you know witness we got a hold of, every. Uh piece of um we started on uh, yeah every layer we peeled off it it just raised more questions and 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 there were some real significant issues with some of the people that had testified and there wasn't any physical evidence of of any sort that, that um held any kind of value there there wasn't um the eyewitness uh testimony about uh identifications was made by an individual who'd been drinking for hours who claimed to see people involved in a, um, a, a quick mugging, um, what at what turned out to be, um, 550 feet away at night about one in the morning, um, down a dark street. And it, it just was ludicrous when, when you, when you actually, um, go out and, and, and have, um, a group of students stand where the, um, the robbery took place and and others, you know, we go back and we stand where the the, uh, witness was standing. And uh, it just was, you shouldn't be convicted in an American court uh, based upon something like that.
2: By the end of that first semester, Brian and his class weren't convinced by the evidence that was used to put the Fairbanks Four in prison. So they shifted their thinking. What started as an attempt to explain the conviction morphed into a deeper investigation. They combed through every piece of evidence they could find, talked to everyone who was involved, and slowly built their own case. Every year, new students would come in and pick up where the last class left off. Each student's contribution, no matter how small, helped Brian mount an investigation that didn't pay off until many of his students had already graduated.
0: What had um, been pretty clear early on after that first semester that we settled nothing by the end of the first semester is that the odds of, um, it's it's very difficult for an undergraduate to uh, maybe even see the results of of any kind of long-term story, you know? And uh, people contributed pieces of research that um, ultimately made it into the stories that sometimes uh, didn't run until two, three, four years after they uh, moved on.
2: But in some cases, his students made huge breakthroughs that had an immediate impact on the case. In the fall of 2002, for instance.
0: One of my students who had concentrated on um, tracking down the jurors and finding out why they did you know, vote to convict in a trial that at that point it seemed to us there had been a lot of doubts raised. Uh, uh, He found a juror who mentioned, did anyone tell you about the experiment?
2: The juror told Brian's student that during deliberation for defendant Kevin Peace's trial, the jury had conducted an experiment to get a better understanding of the key witness's testimony and that this experiment was a big factor in the jury's decision to return a guilty verdict. So Brian assigned two students to follow up with other jurors.
0: And they were able to find, I think, seven of the jurors from that trial and confirm with at least four of them that the entire jury had gone outside during deliberations to sort of pace off a distance um, to try to test the key witnesses' uh, claims about what you can see. And the thing is, they were doing this in summer um, in Anchorage on a, a sunny street and they were trying to evaluate the credibility of a witness who'd claimed to see something after drinking for hours you know, in downtown Fairbanks in the dark at 1.30 in the morning.
2: Brian fleshed this finding out in a story for the news miner, and it got the attention of Kevin Peace's lawyers. They filed a challenge against the jury, and in 2004, Peace's conviction was overturned. The state appealed the decision.
0: Kevin Peace uh, had won a new trial based upon uh, our students' discovery, but ultimately, he never even saw a day out on bail, you know, while he waited for that to climb the appellate chain. And um, the court ultimately uh, ruled that, it, that they shouldn't have even um, intervened in it. In
2: 2004, there was another breakthrough after a student went down to the Court of Appeals in Anchorage to look into one of the state's exhibits.
0: We had um, heard about a footprint exhibit that uh, jurors had found, uh, very, um, influential. And this involved, um, a a photograph of the victim's face that, um, uh, uh, boot prints from the crime lab were sort of laid over the victim's face.
2: The state used the exhibit to show how a boot belonging to George Freeze, one of the Fairbanks Four, had struck John Hartman in the head. But there was a problem with that theory.
0: It turned out that um, though the crime lab's logo was on the boot print uh, transparency, police themselves were the ones that had um, assembled this exhibit based upon material returned by the crime lab, though the crime lab itself could not match anything. It could not even, um, the the techs weren't even willing to uh, state that uh, boots were involved in this.
2: So even though the crime lab couldn't prove that a boot played a role in Hartman's death, the police constructed the exhibit using the crime lab logo to seemingly mislead the jury. The significance of this discovery didn't become apparent to Brian until two years later in 2006, when he was able to interview the lab technicians and confirm that the police had manipulated this exhibit. In fact, one of the detectives who created the exhibit recently confessed to doctoring it.
0: Just this uh, fall, uh a detective who worked on this was on the witness the stand in um, an an evidentiary hearing, and that detective explained the science behind this exhibit is essentially amounted to one of those magic pictures where you're sitting there staring at a picture of the victim on the, the wall, and as he put it, you know, all of a sudden you um, you see the dolphin.
2: But even with major breakthroughs from students, Brian still needed all the help he could get. The cases were still moving through the court system while he was investigating, so it was really hard for him to get his hands on all the court documents related to the case. But then, he caught a lucky break. In 2004, one of the Fairbanks Four, Eugene Vent, switched lawyers, and his new lawyer was someone who had a relationship with Brian's university.
0: And this attorney um, kind of... Uh seemed to be a little overwhelmed and he felt like the um the best thing he could do for his client is uh let us take a look at his material, you know, the files. And um he uh he invited me to come look at the files and um I grabbed like uh every student who was handy at our local newspaper and, and, and I mean our student newspaper in my class and we ran down to his um office one night uh, with a copying machine and a, and a tape duping machine. And we made um, just, uh, you know, dozens of um, copies of police tapes of interviews and, and uh, dispatch calls and, um, you know, the, the, uh, the files that had been assembled in the, in the course of uh, Eugene Vents' um, trial. And that material um, was, you know, raw interviews and, 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 and all sorts of things that um, – you know, you may or may not ever get access to. And uh, that was really, really, uh, you know, tremendous. And But it took about two years going through all of that.
2: Once Brian combed through all of the information from Vent's attorney, he began gathering everything he knew about the case to write a special investigative series for the News Miner. The seven-part series was published in 2008, and it caught the attention of some important people. The Alaska Innocence Project was also formed in 2008. And their first clients were two of the Fairbanks four, George Fries and Marvin Roberts.
0: We don't have um any sort of law school in Alaska. In other places you've seen some partnerships between journalism programs and, and um you know uh affiliated law schools. Um what the Innocence Project brought was was uh you know, the legal um uh the, 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 the legal uh you know mind and, and, and understandings to um uh, to try to identify what were, um, what were relevant in terms of uh, actually challenging the verdicts, because at this point, uh, I, I had established to my own satisfaction, and I think to, um, you know, very persuasively for many readers, why there was reasons to question whether um, anyone deserved to have been convicted based upon what was presented in court. Um, it didn't settle the who done but it, but it, um, it showed why, you know, people were, were, were so dissatisfied with the verdicts.
2: But the Innocence Project also brought something else to the case, something that proved to be much more crucial. They had learned that in 2003, a man named Jason Wallace, who, it's worth remembering, was not part of the Fairbanks Four, Jason Wallace told his attorney that he and his friends had killed John Hartman. In 2004, before he knew about the confession, Brian had interviewed Wallace, who was in prison in California for an unrelated murder.
0: I was tipped that he might know something about the Hartman case, and I went to um, interview him in jail. And he very, very weirdly uh, was not um, questioning why I was there talking to him. He wanted to know why, uh, where I got his name. And we found out this fall, uh, it was confirmed in court that, that he did um, uh, share that information with his um, public defender at the time and that he, um, a public defender investigator went and um, heard him, you know, describe how uh, he and his friends had, had uh, you know, assaulted John Hartman. And uh, the Innocence Project, um, through that investigator and a leak between another investigator, he became a founding board member of the Innocence Project, knew from the very beginning that, that there were some other individuals who'd, uh, uh, somebody had confessed in this case.
2: Brian had spent a lot of time in his investigation trying to track down alternative suspects. Wallace had always been on his list, but he could never directly connect him to the crime.
0: But it was something that it was just uh, one of many sort of alternative um, suspects. And a guy that I could never really tie to this, but there had been um, some of our, our uh, police reports from that night showed that there was a, a, a group of um, you know, uh, black uh, uh, suspects who had chased around some drunken natives that night and, and, and had been um, seen downtown and, and, and uh, maybe knocked a guy down. And so, the, you know, it was one of those things that, uh, it, you know, it fit out there that perhaps maybe, for example, he might have been riding in a car with, with a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, gang wannabes and seen something happened that night you know so i mean you don't know how a person might fit in but but he certainly was was um someone that seemed to be one of these individuals of interest and we always kept an eye on him
2: so when the innocence project also thought wallace might be directly involved Brian immediately asked a student to start quietly putting a story together in the process they were able to figure out some of the people who might have been with wallace on the night of the hartman attack one of them was a guy named william z holmes a convicted murderer, and a high school classmate of Jason Wallace's who gave a statement about his involvement with Hartman's death in 2012. At this point, the case was really heating up, and one day Brian said he got a tip from a prison inmate saying that there were people still living in Fairbanks who were connected to Hartman's death. Brian didn't know who Hartman's other killers were, but he knew they were at large and willing to intimidate people who cooperated with the police. So he decided to scale back student involvement in the case. That meant less field reporting, more research from the safety of the classroom. So instead of turning students loose on leads like William Holmes, who had also been a local rapper, Brian had his students spend time collecting Holmes's recordings.
0: And checking to see if uh, there was any kind of uh, references in any uh, songs coming out of the studio that um, you know that's the kind of thing you could turn a student loose. okay I want you to go through you know five of these albums here and and, and listen and see if there's any kind of like obvious Hartman references.
2: All of Brian's work, combined with the efforts of the Innocence Project, culminated in a post-conviction relief hearing last October, 18 years after John Hartman died and 14 years after Brian started investigating the case. The hearings included new testimony from William Holmes, who had told the court he was driving when Jason Wallace and three of their friends got out of his car and attacked Hartman. He said he didn't realize they had killed Hartman until Wallace showed him the story in the newspaper. Brian's students shot video of his testimony.
3: He handed me a newspaper. I asked him, "You know what's what's, what's up?" And he just he wouldn't say anything. He handed me a newspaper, pointed to the newspaper. So I began to look at it, and still ask him, "You know, man, what's up?" And I looked, and I was I was reading it. It was uh, on the, I believe the front page. It was saying something about a boy being dead, and it still didn't register until I read the uh, I seen Barnett and whatever street it was. And when I read that, that's when, for me, it clicked that that was the area that we were in on uh, that Friday night. So I was just like, I was shocked, like, like, damn. That's when he began to talk and just say, hey, man, uh, uh, you know, we gotta, everybody gotta be quiet. And and then he he said, uh, you know, if everybody ain't quiet, we're gonna have to, like the the
2: others. Brian was excited to see his efforts come to fruition in court, but right before the hearing, he got subpoenaed by the state. They requested all his documents and correspondences, and they blocked him from watching the hearing. One of his students ended up live tweeting the court proceedings, but still, being cut off from the case was frustrating.
0: My lawyer told me I'm not even supposed to watch my students, I'm not even supposed to monitor my students' Twitter feed, you know? I mean, uh, you're locked out of the proceedings that, uh, you know, are presenting all the evidence, verifying what you've been working on all these years, you know? I mean, um, I I covered this, you know, pretty much every step of the way through 2001 through 2000, um, July of 2015, and then suddenly uh it's kind of like uh, your sideline for the for the main event
2: for nearly 14 years working for a university instead of a newspaper put him in the perfect position to slowly build up his reporting in the case but now his position as a public employee left him little protection against anyone who wanted to file records requests and see his tapes files and emails the irony of this reversal was not lost on him
0: and i'm the person that for uh you know, the whole time I've been here, my students have been uh, barraging, you know, other uh, departments and offices of the university for uh, everything from records on praf- on traffic tickets to, uh, you know, what are the terms of particular grant applications. And, and you know, I teach students how to use FOIA. It, to some extent, uh, get turned around and, 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 and uh, records requests are aimed at the university itself. And so who am I to... Um, Uh, be surprised that suddenly I have very little protection for um, my own records in this case.
2: In December, the state reached a settlement with the Fairbanks Four and they were released from prison. But their release came with a condition. They couldn't sue the state for damages. So while Brian was excited to see them free, he had mixed feelings about the way it all played out.
0: I am really uh, disheartened by um, the uh, what what really seemed to be the priority was um, uh, uh, fending off prosecutorial misconduct charges and perhaps... um, uh you know, reducing the the likelihood of these guys would collect um large damages for 18 years of uh false incarceration the settlement the settlement stinks uh i i feel good that um i was part of um uh springing these guys from prison and i believe they're they're innocent and and i think that was documented this fall but um i i think that the state's terms are are uh they took away the right to seek any kind of civil compensation, and they um, tried very hard to, to uh, even um, leave an impression that, that these guys were not exonerated. But by um, the definitions uh, that uh, apply, I mean, they, they were released and had charges erased, and um, the, the original indictments dismissed all as a result of a post-conviction release proceeding, and that is exoneration.
2: Brian thinks the legal system has been prioritizing its own reputation over the pursuit of justice from the very beginning. He said that he doesn't blame the police for arresting the Fairbanks Four in the moments after Hartman's death. But when the evidence didn't add up, the police refused to admit they were wrong.
0: Instead of opening their minds to alternatives, they doubled down and started looking for snitches and started manufacturing evidence. And I just don't think that would have happened if... um, if uh, this had been a a group of uh, white kids from a middle-class family. You know, instead it was um, kids from uh, the the native side of town. And and, um, the police uh, uh, and the prosecutor, you know, I think were were, uh, fundamentally um, unjust.
2: Because he was shut out from the hearing, Brian's next step will be to go through the court records along with hours of footage and thousands of tweets from his students.
0: I'll be going through that for for ages um, because, to me, what is next is the story about the systemic failure here. And even though the state has dodged um, a finding of prosecutorial misconduct or or, or these big million-dollar judgments, I, I think we still need to identify what went wrong. This case was reviewed probably more extensively than any other case in Alaska history because they were split into three different trials since the state thought one or more of them would turn state's evidence, you know, and testify against the others. There was three different trials, and uh, each of those trials went up the chain of of, of review to, you know, sometimes to the Supreme Court more than once. And so there was multiple, multiple um, opportunities for the appellate court's to intervene and, and, and um, address the, the, the flaws of this case. And the fact that they kept, uh, you know, fending off challenges to this case uh, tells me there's something wrong with the law because it shouldn't depend upon a, um, a journalism professor and uh, students to um, point out what's wrong with, with, with a bad case. It shouldn't depend upon... Um, a leak between um, agency investigators about a guy who's confessed to uh, provide ammunition for um, something like the the Innocence Project.
2: So far, there have been no new arrests made in the murder of John Hartman, and the case remains unsolved. Although his work on the Fairbanks 4 case isn't quite done, Brian has found some time to celebrate their freedom and the accomplishments of his students, each of whom played a small but significant role in the outcome.
0: One of the things that's been that has been kind of cool is how many students worked on this and then went on in 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 uh, in other professional roles that um, circled back to to having involvement in this. You know, I mean, I had a student who wound up being the um, working as a a, a, a a top aide, you know, in the, in in the governor's office, and 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 you know, just just there's a lot of people who. Uh, you know, this was part of their formative experiences. And, and um, yeah, it's been it's been cool in that regard.
1: Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And head on over to Irie.org podcast to browse our archives. We have some really cool stuff in our show notes for this episode, including links to some of Brian's articles, photos of the Fairbanks Four, and a seven-part TV series by Anchorage station KTUU. Erin Pellish reported our story this week. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. You can find all of our emails in the show notes. Our next episode is going to be a little different, and we can't wait for you to hear it. We'll be releasing two episodes on the same day, one in English and another entirely in Spanish. I'll be talking with Daniela Guaso of El Universal about her work counting and reporting on people who have disappeared in Mexico and Colombia. Look for those episodes in the coming weeks. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Daniela Vidal.
3: Podcast. Might do that okay. yeah. Podcast. Podcast.